Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Okay, so this is part two of the interview I did with Justin Lee. We're jumping right into the conversation, so buckle up. We're just going to hit the ground running. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Anytime somebody comes to you and says, something that you believe that you've believed your whole life is wrong, whatever that thing is, it's very hard to just turn on a dime, especially if it's something that has weight to it. We all know that we're fallible. We all know we could be wrong about things. If I go to you and I say, hey, this thing you've always believed that's an important thing you're wrong about, your resistance to that is not because you think that you're perfect, but because like it's reasonable to not just, if somebody tells you you're wrong, not just say, oh, okay, you know, I'm just going to change my mind based on what other people tell me. We all have to sort of believe that, that we've got things right for the most part. And so it takes time in cases where we are wrong. It takes time to work through that. It takes time, you know, to rethink things. Sometimes God has to bring different things into our life to sort of slowly reveal it to us. Now, I say that all from the perspective that I think that my dad was wrong and is right. Anybody who thinks that my dad went from right to wrong, obviously would, would see it differently. But either way, I think empathy is just one of the, the most important skills that, that, that we have to have as Christians. And I think what has hurt us as a church more than anything in this conversation is not a lack of attention to scripture on this topic, although I think there are a lot of ways we need to understand scripture better. It's it's not showing enough empathy, especially in places where we disagree. Totally. And Justin, that's something I've observed as a strength of yours in this queer theology conversation or the LGBTQ plus community as it pertains to Christians. There's so much around this conversation. There's so many layers. There's so much nuance, so much history of like uh, some awful stuff. You stick out as somebody who is a proponent for queer people in this conversation as diplomatic and considerate and patient. And and I personally like have to wrestle through that because I'm like, when I set out on like, okay, I see where this is going. I envision being more like you in this process and in this dialogue. And I was not planning on talking about this at all, but I think we're going to go there. Oh God, I'm a little nervous. I anticipated being being more like you in this conversation where I'm like, I don't know that I need people to land somewhere in particular. I would like to at least help facilitate lowering the dividing walls and having people who are, you know, digging their heels in the ground and resisting being inclusive to queer people, helping them kind of soften their rigidity and their strict legalism here, at least to open them up to being more compassionate and considerate and then negotiating on the things that move within that space. And then in that process, <laughs> I found myself being, I don't know if incapable is the right word, but it's not far away from relevant, almost incapable of delving into that kind of patience and consideration for non-affirming people. And I think that's because it's just part of a maturity process for me. I don't know that I'll always be here, but right now I'm very aware I am incapable of being patient and considerate and understanding of what I perceive as unjust and bigoted beliefs against the whole people group using the Bible as a weapon against them. That's how I'm currently perceiving this landscape and the attitudes of the Christians who continue to represent 
that rhetoric to me. And the reason I think I'm digging my heels in the ground against that is because somewhere in this process of me have like coming out to my immediate community, I had this realization, I was being so accommodating and even enabling of the non-affirming people around me to not have to take this issue seriously, to not take my process and my experience or my, my life seriously, and that it's okay for them to disagree with me on this and still show up and be nice and civil to my face, but underneath all this genuinely disagree with the deep, beautiful part of my process. And I realized that what I'm walking through is actually not something to apologize for. It's not dirty. It's not sinful. It's not outside of the family. And that my attitude toward allowing these voices to have as much influence and say in this process was coming from this tail between the legs posture I was in. And once I realized that that was inappropriate, it was actually out of line with what I was experiencing from the spirit of God. I was like, whoa, I can't behave this way anymore. I can't like enable or accommodate these voices or these ideas in my environment. They can have those ideas other places, but as far as it's subjected to my sphere, I'm going to address that or, you know, oppose it. And I don't know how long this will last. It might be the rest of my life. It might be just the phase I'm going through, but I'm very aware that I have to like break up with finding a way to make those voices make sense because it was doing that from a young age that put me in that cage to begin with and made me live in a closet and lying to myself and everyone else and whatever. So I guess I'm the reason I'm saying all this, I would love to hear your thoughts on, I guess, just even observing my process here, because I'm still a baby, right? I'm a gaby in this. I'm still new in like coming out and responding to these voices and the backlash and all the things. And you've been doing this for, you know, 20 years or 25 years or however long. I guess I have two questions. One, how do you perceive what I just expressed? Did do you relate to that? Was that nowhere in your process? And then two, where is this patience and accommodation? coming from in light of like my, you know, need to push against that. There's a lot there. I mean, I think that all of us, we're all different. We are all called to, to do different things in different ways. I'm always leery of saying, you know, taking something that God's called me to, and then saying, this is how everyone must always do everything all the time, because I can't say what God's calling somebody else to. I can just say what God's calling me to. But I think that it is absolutely normal and understandable when you have a lot of pain, a lot of stuff that you're still working through internally, it is very reasonable to say, right, now, I'm not in a good space emotionally to be able to try to you know, build a bridge with this other person. I'm still figuring out where I am, or I'm still working through stuff that I've been holding in for a long time. And and, th and that's okay. I mean, why wouldn't that be okay? To me, I, I respect it greatly. If I'm having a conversation with somebody on, say, some other unrelated topic, if I have a disagreement with somebody on something, and if they say, you know what, I am having a really bad day today, and I didn't get much sleep, and I'm not feeling great, and I, I don't think I'm at my best right now to have a challenging conversation. I think maybe another time would be better to have this conversation. Boy, that's a really mature thing to be able to say, to acknowledge that, to say, I am not in a good place right now emotionally, to do the bridging that I would need to do to have this disagreement, uh, to talk about this disagreement in a way that's going to be helpful. And I think that that's true, not just in terms of having a bad day, but it's true in terms of saying, hey, given where I am right now, at this point in my life, what I've been through and what I'm going through emotionally, what I'm working through, it's not a good time for me. Who knows where I'm maybe a month from now, a year from now. But right now, I don't think I would be able to, to have this difficult conversation with this person in this way and do it respectfully in a way that moves things forward. Even if you normally are, you may find yourself in the middle of a conversation where suddenly you find, boy, this is just getting really, I know I do, you know, where I find something's getting really emotional for me and I just have to stop and say, you know what, maybe let's talk about something else for a while. Or maybe let's um, talk about this another day because I, I'm getting frustrated and I don't think anything else I say today is going to be good. So, 
you know, maybe let's, let's push pause on this. I think you have to do that. I think where my patience on this comes from, and it's, it's kind of you to, to put it that way is partly, like I said, I know that I said many of these things myself, and I know that I meant well when I said them. And so I just keep reminding myself of, of that. I also think about it kind of like in a movie or a TV show, and this happens all the time in romantic comedies. And it's one of the most frustrating things ever where you have the two leads and there's some really silly misunderstanding. She walked in at the wrong time and she saw something or heard something that didn't mean what it sounded like. And now she's upset and he sees her upset and thinks she's upset about something else. And now they're not talking to each other. And, you know, and you just, then they spend the whole rest of the movie angry at each other and whatever. And finally things get resolved in the end, but you spend the whole movie as a viewer just going, why don't you just sit down and have a conversation and clear up this misunderstanding? All of this is one silly misunderstanding. If either of you would just have the patience to sit down for a moment and say, wait a second, what you heard isn't what it sounded like, or this is what I think you just said, can you clarify for me, rather than making the assumption and spending the whole movie mad at each other, could you just sit down? It's so frustrating. And, and this happens all the time. And I think honestly, it's often it's lazy writing uh, in TV shows and movies, but it also happens in real life. And I honestly think this is an example of that, where some of the Christian's and non-Christians, frankly, out there who say things that sound really homophobic and bigoted and whatever. Some of them are, let's be honest, people who just don't care very much about what other people are going through and are generally unkind in a lot of ways and self-centered and whatever. God still loves them. They're human beings. They're imperfect. But what sounds like bigotry really is just bigotry. That is true of some people. But I know a lot of people who say things that sound hateful or, or bigoted and that are hurtful and that do damage, but they don't mean to do damage. They are simply misunderstanding some things. They don't understand what it's like to be gay or to be LGBTQ. They have made some wrong assumptions about what people are going through, about what the terms mean, about what would prompt somebody to say that they're gay. And they are operating in a way that makes sense based on the assumptions that they've made. It's just their assumptions are wrong. And what often happens is we spend so much time arguing about everything that comes after the assumptions, but we don't ever stop and say, wait, let's go back to the assumptions. Because nobody, when somebody says, you know, being gay is a sin and you're going to hell and whatever, they don't usually start that conversation by saying, being gay, by which I mean this assumption that I've made about what that term means, da 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 da, da right? And then when you hear those things and you respond to them in anger, you don't usually stop by saying, but by the way, just to clarify, when you say gay, what I'm hearing you to mean is da 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 We just assume you said gay, I said gay, we both mean the same thing. And very often stuff like that, you know, we don't mean the same thing by gay. We aren't starting with the same assumptions about what it is to be LGBTQ. And so some of these things that sound hateful and bigoted are actually just coming from wrong assumptions that if we can take the time to sit down together and hear each other's stories and correct those mistaken assumptions, a lot of this stuff gets better. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it does slowly get better. And that's really what I want to do. If a Christian understands what it's like to be gay and understands why somebody identifies as gay and understands all of the pain that we go through and all of the theological wrestling and like they really, they don't just say they understand, but they've really walked that journey. They've really empathized. And then they come to the conclusion that God wants us to be celibate for life. But they come to that conclusion really understanding what that means. Not just saying, oh, that means not having sex. And hey, you know, straight people don't 
you know, we're not supposed to have sex before we get married. It's exactly the same, you know, but if they've really sat with all that that means for a person and they still come to that conclusion, well, you know, we're going to disagree on that. But 99% of the time, I think they haven't done that. I want to help them do that and understand what it is that they're actually saying. And I think the only way to do that is with patience and stories. Thank God you exist, Justin Lee. Okay, so I'm curious, one thing before we leave this space. This could all be coming out of my own immaturity. That's very possible. I don't know if that's the case. I'm not convinced that's what it is, but I'm not above that possibility. So I just want to throw that out there as a disclaimer. And then within that context represent this thing I feel very strongly about and that I do have people push against and that I am not budging on. So I've got a lot of Christians in my environment or in my audience who feel fine with people being gay as long as they, I, as the gay person, I don't require them to agree with the fact that I believe I'm fully acceptable and embraced and celebrated the way I am before God, as long as we're okay with them disagreeing with me on that, then there's no issue. And I'm the one who's like, no, we have an issue. I'm not okay agreeing with that. You know, like that to me doesn't come across as love to me. When Christians say, I love you, I don't accept this part of you. I don't, right, but I love you. I'm like, "Mm -mm, that's not acceptable to me. I don't accept and so to me, I don't think I'm trying to be technical. I think I'm like, what you're saying when you call it love is not how I don't experience love from that. I think you're being nice. I think you're being civil or maybe, maybe you're pitying me. Like that's all accurate. I can agree with that. But to call this love to me is actually violating. Like that's not love. Love would genuinely understand and empathize with my experience, hear my witness, Right. And then that would necessitate a due diligence on your part to actually come into this with some humility. And then I actually do expect down the road, you would actually end up changing your mind about this theology you have based on what people like me and our lives are bringing to the table that a lot of these people seem committed to a misunderstanding or ignoring entirely. What are your thoughts on that? I think this is another case where we need to be really careful to clarify our terms because When somebody says, I want to love you, I do love you, but I disagree on this. It's the this piece. It's the what is it, what is it, what is it we're disagreeing on? Let's be really clear about what we're disagreeing on. What I think people sometimes mean to say is, I love you and I and I want to love you fully and truly, even if we have a disagreement about a question of sexual morality. That in and of itself, I think, is a reasonable thing to say. If two Christians disagree on what God's view is of sex before marriage, for instance, and one Christian says, I think God uh, wants us to wait until we get married before we have sex, and the other Christian says, actually, I, I don't think that that's a requirement. Do I think that those two Christians can love each other? despite that disagreement? Sure. Can they love each other despite that disagreement, even if neither one of them is married and the one who believes that sex is okay before marriage is having sex and not married? Can the person who disagrees with that disagree with something that they're doing and this you have a theological disagreement and still love them? Yes, absolutely. I think that can be true. Presumably, they wouldn't spend a lot of time talking about it, though. I mean, if, you, if someone's your friend and you've you've talked about this and, and you, you're both convinced of your positions, I would question someone who considers themselves a friend who feels the need to, like, every time you 
you get together, bring up, by the way, let's talk about the sex that you're having before marriage, because I think is a sin. You know? So I think that's what these Christians mean to say when they say this sort of thing. But I think there are two ways they go wrong. One is maybe not so much about something, you know, a way that they're going wrong, but how it's coming across. What often comes across is the idea that they disapprove of your existence as a gay person, your being gay. I keep coming back to this idea of like the definition of gay, which seems like such a silly thing, but I've done surveys of Christians and you would be surprised how differently a significant percentage of like conservative evangelical Christians define the word gay versus self-identified LGBTQ people. I've done a survey where, where I ask like, John is married to a woman, but he's attracted to men and he's faithful to his wife. What's his sexual orientation? And LGBTQ folks go, if he's attracted to only men, he's gay. Even though he's married to a woman, he's gay. If he's attracted to men and women, he's bi. A significant percentage of conservative evangelicals respond by saying things like he's straight because he's married to a woman and faithful to her because they're defining gay and straight based on behavior rather than attraction. Or others won't say he's straight, but they'll say, well, I don't want to assign any term to him because gay is an identity and he might not take on that identity but again, that's still a different definition from the person who says gay is same-sex attractive. There's a whole history of why we have these different ter- different uh, definitions for the term, but it's important to understand that we do. So when somebody says, I love you, but I don't support your being gay, they may mean I want to have a difference or I do have a difference of opinion about a particular theological question about sexual behavior. But what comes across is... This thing about yourself that has always been true even before you admitted it to anyone, that always will be true, that you didn't choose, that you cannot change, that is part of how your brain is built and how you are wired and how you've always been wired, this thing that is a part of who you are, it is a piece of you, just like any other thing in your brain is a piece of you. I want to love you, but not love a piece of you. And that's a really different thing. That's like a parent saying to their child, I love you, but I don't like that you're a boy. Okay, well, I am. What am I supposed to do with that? You know, I love you, but I I don't like your race. That's how it comes across. Not to mention the gender analogy there has all kinds of resonance for trans folks. And that's a whole nother conversation. That's important for people to understand. I love you, but but not that you have autism. Okay, but that's part of who I am. So how do you, you know, like that kind of thing. So I think that's one way that it goes wrong. People don't understand that that's how they're coming across and that is how they're coming across. The other thing I think that goes wrong is people think about this just as a disagreement on sexual behavior without actually thinking about what it means to be a gay person where your only option to fall in love is with somebody of the same sex. People say to me all the time, well, I gave this example a minute ago. Well, you know, if you're straight and and aren't supposed to have sex before marriage, you have to abstain. So how is that any different from, you know, saying that I think a gay person has to abstain? And I say, well, because if you're straight and you're waiting until marriage to have sex, you still get the opportunity eventually to have sex. But also that's just about sex. Saying, I think you should wait before you have sex isn't saying, I think you should wait before you fall in love with anyone. It's not saying you are forbidden from holding somebody's hand. You're forbidden from going on a date. You're forbidden from admitting your feelings for somebody. You're going to be treated differently if you ever publicly acknowledge that you feel attraction to the opposite sex. That is what gets said to a lot of gay folks. And so if you believe that I am forbidden from having a a sexual relationship with somebody of the same sex, that is a thing we can disagree on. But if you want to hold that position and you're telling me that you love me and you really do love me, part of that love needs to be loving me enough 
to think beyond just the sex question and ask yourself things like, does that mean that Justin has to be alone for the rest of his life? Or is there some way for him to get companionship that would be okay? I ask people that question and often they say, I don't really know. And I'm like, okay, well, if you love gay people and you love them enough that you care about their well-being, that should have been your first question. You should have spent a hundred times more time thinking about that question than the sex question. Because I guarantee you, gay people, the, the, the big, when gay people say, oh, we want to get married, it's not because we're so desperate to have sex. The sex drive is part of the human experience for most humans. I, sure, I certainly hope people aren't getting married just for the sake of, of having sex. You get married for companionship. That's the important piece. If all that you've thought about is just the sex piece, and you've never really stopped to think or think as much about the companionship piece, that says to me that there needs to be more love there and more empathy. And if you thought about the companionship piece, and your conclusion is that even some kind of a committed partnership would be too far over the line or too close to the line, and you can't approve of that, then I don't know how you tell me that God has denied me that opportunity without absolutely breaking down in tears if you love me. Because if you love me and you really care that much about my well-being and you come to the conclusion that God has said that I have to be alone for my entire life, that I can never have a family, I can never have somebody to come home to, I can never have somebody to hold my hand or or to sit with me, you know, when I go through a death of somebody close to me, that somebody who can be there with me when I'm sick can support me in difficult times, the things that people rely on their spouses for. If you've come to the conclusion that God has said that all of that is denied to me, even though I desperately want that. And that's something you can dismiss as easily as, well, I had to wait until I got married before I had sex. Then that says to me that you really don't love me that much. And I think that's the piece that people are really missing. And again, sometimes I think it comes back to misunderstanding because they think being gay is a choice or they think they wrongly believe that if you would go to the right ministry or pray enough, then you would become straight. And so in that sense, it's a choice. They don't honestly believe that what they're saying is that God has forbidden you from ever having that because they think there's something you could do where you could have that. And once people do understand, really understand that they're saying these are folks who whose only option to fall in love is with somebody of the same sex, but that's forbidden. If they really love those people, then, then it does tear them up. But often they just haven't gotten to that point. That's why I think it's so difficult when, when people say that. For folks who want to dig more into that, I gave a talk that's on my YouTube channel a few years back at uh, Baylor, the Christian University in, in Texas. I talked about three different approaches that people take to gay people in particular. And I talked about the difference between having an oppositional approach where it's like, you know, gays are the enemies or having a a sympathetic approach where you say, well, gosh, you know, I, I, boy, I want to love you. But there's, but you're not really walking in their shoes. It's this kind of pitying sort of a, oh gosh, that must be tough. Oh, well, I'm late for dinner date with my spouse, you know, versus an empathetic approach. Sympathy is, is pity in many cases, and empathy is really walking in somebody's shoes. We live in a culture right now where people are very, very polarized on a lot of issues and where a lot of people say, if you're not 100% with me on everything, then you're the scum of the earth. We Christians are not going to agree on everything anytime soon. There are important issues we disagree on, and I don't mean to gloss over that because 
Some of those issues I think people need to get right. And I think people are getting them wrong and they think I'm getting them wrong. But my goodness, if there's anything we could contribute to the culture right now, besides Jesus is Lord, which is obviously the most important piece, I would love for the church to set an example of what it looks like to disagree with empathy, where I can say, I think this person's gotten gotten something important wrong, but I'm going to care about them so much that I'm going to see the world through their eyes and understand their point of view so well that it breaks my heart when I realize bad things are coming their way. And that's something that the world needs to learn. And we could do that. And I suspect you're laughing because we are not at all doing that. And it's like the opposite of our reputation. So what you just said about like empathy with the person who we disagree with, privileged people Mm. who are sitting in the seats of power in our culture who would take what you just said and be like, I want Mike to apply that to me. I want him to experience, like be empathetic toward what I'm going through with him coming out. And they would flip it on its head and I wanna pull my hair out because I, and it's partly because I just, I don't know how to help them understand the absurdity of the blindness, right? But I literally have people I've respected for years that is like they're plummeting in my world, in my view of like their ability to be functional, rational people. They take so what you just said for themselves and apply it to a marginalized voice like me and be like, you need to treat me this way. And I'm like, would you care to speak to that? We could have many, many long conversations about this because I realize this opens a whole Pandora's box. But I'll say this, I can't control what anybody else does. If someone's not being empathetic toward me, I can't make them. I can tell my story. I can ask them to be empathetic. I can try and share my experiences with them in a way that I think will invite them to listen. I cannot force them to do it. Do I think God wants them to do it? Absolutely, I think God wants them to do it. All I can do is control me. And what I try to do as much as I can in life is in any situation I'm in, in any disagreement, I try to see things from the other person's point of view, whether I am being marginalized or not. I try to always see the other person's position recognizing that, as we said earlier, when you are going through a lot of pain, have been through a lot of pain, you may not always be in a place to do the kind of of bridging you might like to do, and you have to be realistic about what you're able to do. That said, thinking about myself and my situations, I certainly feel the greatest responsibility, maybe is the right way to put it, to be empathetic and to do extra, extra listening when I know that I am in a position of of having the power. When I am looking at the perspective of somebody who's marginalized in, in a way that I'm not, do I think there is greater responsibility for people who have power, who are in the majority, to listen better to people who are not? Yeah, absolutely I do. I still think even in cases where I'm the only one in my situation that I have to try to understand things from other people's perspective because I'm the only one that I can control. And the better I understand the people who are opposing me, the better I can try to help them understand me. And I look at Jesus. I mean, Jesus is being crucified. You know, from a Christian perspective, Jesus is the the only person who's done things perfectly. And Jesus is being crucified by people who are sinners in every sense and are, are are literally putting him to death, ridiculing him, beating him, humiliating him, have all the power in every way, and still is humble and still asking for for God's forgiveness on them. So somehow there is this love 
even for the oppressor that Jesus taps into in those moments that I wish I could tell you I always felt. I do not always feel it. When there's a conflict, I'm not going to sit and put the blame on the person who, who didn't have power and say, well, if only you had done this better, then this wouldn't have happened. The responsibility is, is very much on, on the person who has the power. But since I can only control myself, I try to be empathetic in every situation. Because of the Pandora's box thing, I'm going to stop there. Thank you for your response. Because there's so much more to be said there, Justin. I'm oh, like yeah. I want to recognize that it is complicated and nuanced. And what I just said is trying to give a simple answer to something that's absolutely not simple. Yes, there's much more to be said on that. And I was so blind to most of this until I came out. And then all of a sudden, this stuff became very needed to understand. I'm like, whoa, we have terminology for this, for what I'm experiencing right now. People have already discussed and like labeled this stuff. This is, this is wild. You were the first gay Christian that Kathy Baldock ever discovered. <laughs> My audience has heard me interview Kathy. They've heard her story. Hopefully they've watched her other YouTube videos of teaching on all this. Would you mind just kind of chiming in on that experience? What was it like having Kathy enter in the world from your perspective? And, you know, how did, was there much crossover? What was that like? Oh my word. You know, Kathy can tell that story way better than I can. It was a crazy, crazy time for me because I had started this little thing, this little website that was becoming a bigger thing and then got contacted by a reporter with the New York Times. And uh, because I was interviewed in that in that story, which was a front page article, boy, my phone was ringing off the hook uh, after that. So I was just busy, busy, busy and trying my best to run this little organization that was becoming a big organization. And uh, yeah, I didn't have any business management experience. Nobody taught me how to run an organization. I just got thrown into all of this stuff and had to learn how to do event planning and how to manage a community of increasingly diverse viewpoints and people who didn't always get along and do PR and fundraising and I mean so many, many things. And in the midst of all of that, and you know, and keep in mind, all of this is coming from me after I had realized that I was gay at 18 and then went through years of just depression and struggle and pain and losing so many people I cared about who thought that I had turned from God and trying to figure out what the Bible said and trying to figure out what my future was and feeling really lost and not having anybody to turn to. And then all of a sudden I'm trying to help all these other people, but I haven't really gotten help yet. I'm giving what I have, but I feel like I need someone to tell me what to do. And I, and I do want to stop and just acknowledge that there were other people who came before me. I was not like, you know, the first gay Christian by any stretch of the imagination. But at this point, I just didn't, I didn't have a lot of support. I didn't know who these people were who'd come before me. I was trying to do all that and then run this organization and all that too. And then I remember Kathy came to one of our conferences that we were putting on at the time. Her memories of it are much more clear than mine because it was just such a chaotic time for me. But I remember her standing up at some point and giving a little very Kathy-like speech about sort of where she was in her journey and just thinking, who is this person? Was it bizarre for you to have a straight woman in that environment? It wasn't bizarre. I mean, I don't remember exactly when this started, but I remember that you know, early on, there were some people who were straight who were interested because they had a child who had come out or they they were a pastor or, or a friend or whatever. And so it, it had started happening early on. I know Kathy was one of the first 
but I don't remember for sure who was like the first, but I, I, it was something that there had been early on, there were some straight people who became part of our online community. What had started as a little bitty online space for a few Christians who were also gay, who were, by the way, on different sides of the, the same-sex marriage question. I mean, there were some folks who said, well, I think God's called us to celibacy. And so I, I want support in being celibate. And folks who said, well, I'm married or I want to be married to somebody of the same sex. And folks who said, I, I'm not really sure. I just want a place to not be alone. So, you know, we had that diversity from the beginning, but then over time, it wasn't just gay Christians. It was gay and bi and straight. And then eventually like also trans Christians who were also straight or gay or bi or, you know, and so it was this kind of growing group. So the fact that a straight woman was there wasn't really what surprised me, but Kathy was just very passionate and I didn't know her at the time. And so it kind of, that caught me off guard a little bit because I didn't know what to expect. Over the years, of course, Kathy and I've gotten to know each other very well and, and she's a friend. I think I didn't fully appreciate in the beginning how passionate she was about this work and how passionate she would be. But she and I are really different in our approaches too, in a way that I think is actually is healthy. If, if I'm good cop, Kathy's bad cop. Kathy pushes the envelope much more than I do, even in situations where I think I would have the right, if you will, to say, you must listen to me. I am under no obligation to listen to you. You must listen to me. I am willing to say, I'll listen to you first. If that's what helps us have a conversation, I'll listen to you first. Even though in my mind, I'm thinking, you should be the one listening to me. Sometimes even if the other person's at fault, sometimes you have to be the first one to apologize if you want to reconcile. Kathy is the one who will really push things. If one of us is going to be one way and the other is going to be the other, I would rather, as the gay person, be the one who is willing to be more accommodating and listen and to let her as the as the straight person be the one who is, you know, is, is pushing things rather than the other way around. I think if you're an ally, sometimes the allies have to be willing to push things more it's different when you're an ally than it is when you're the, the person. I remember sitting at that table at the Reformation Project, uh, Matthew Vine's event. You were mm. sitting across the table from me. We were having a conversation. Kathy comes over, plops down, right? And we're having a dialogue. And I like cracked up multiple times. And I barely spoke because you guys, you know, are these giants in this big work and conversation that I was just so new to. And the difference in your demeanor and your approach, just even in the way you participated in the dialogue was laughable. I'm like, you guys are so different from each other. Mm -hmm. And it was just so cool to see the diversity and the different voices that have been brought to this cause. It's hilarious and awesome. And yeah, I just love getting to be exposed to so many different voices in this space and that you guys are bringing the uniqueness that you do. And Kathy, as she's pushing the envelope, you're over there like trying to like pull it back a little bit. Like we don't need to go that far that fast. And she's like, we got to go. And I'm like over there with Kathy. I'm like, no, she's right. We got to go. <laughs> hey, the eye cannot say to the, the hand, I don't right. need you, right? Oh, totally. Yeah, I love it. That's awesome. Justin, I wanted to touch briefly. So I wanted to spend more time on this, but I don't know if we have time for it. But I did want to ask you, you do step into the debate space and like talk with other voices in the LGBTQ plus conversation with opposing views. You have a value for facilitating and empowering conversation here. Um, I guess one of my questions in that space is, what are some of your observations of entering the debate space? Why do you do it? And what have you learned from it? What's beneficial? 
Uh, I would just love to hear some of your thoughts on that. Cause I know right now I'm like, I cannot engage in that space without causing harm, without doing damage mm. myself. I will cut people. Right. So I don't want to put myself in that position, but you willingly choose to get on a platform in front of a bunch of people who, you know, disagree with you and like engage what's going on there. I would say, you know, as a general rule, I don't do debates. I don't, I don't find debates helpful most of the time because when you're debating with somebody what instantly happens is people on both sides of a debate are focused on winning. Once a conversation becomes a debate, you have very little chance of changing the other person's mind because they are so focused on winning that even if you make a good point, what they're going to be thinking about while you're talking is not whether they agree with you, it's how do I poke a hole in this? How do I counter this? They've already decided they are going to disagree. They just, they want to win. We dig our heels in. Once something becomes a debate or an argument, we dig our heels in. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I certainly have where I get so into a debate or when, especially if it becomes a heated argument that even if I know on some level that the other person's right about something, I can't bring myself to admit it in the moment because I don't want to look weak. I don't want to lose, you know, and then I feel foolish later. I try to avoid anything that becomes a debate, even a public debate. I think public debates can be more useful than private ones because you're not in a public debate really trying to change the mind of the other person on the stage. You're trying to change the audience's mind. But when it comes to conversations about this stuff, I find that even those public debates, what tends to happen is the audience picks sides and then they just root for their team the way they root for a sporting you know, rooted at a sporting event. Nobody, you know, goes to a, a football game and halfway through the game says, actually, you know, the other team's playing better. I'm going to switch sides and start cheering for them. You know, they might be frustrated that their side's not doing better, but once you choose sides, you're, you've chosen sides. As a general rule, when somebody asks me to do a debate, I, I turn them down. I wanted to hear a little bit about, you told me about your engagement story. You're engaged. <laughs> and would love to hear, you know, the Reader's Digest version of what was that like? How did that go? What are the thoughts and feelings around this? Succinctly, I understand I'm like, I'm not giving you the best platform for success in this, but would love to, if you were willing to share whatever you can in that kind of space. After many years of doing this work as a, as a single person, yeah, I mean, I'm engaged now and that's exciting. And Michael, my fiance and I met years ago at a Reformation Project conference, actually. We have been friends for a long time, but long distance, we live in different states. He has cats and I'm allergic. I've always been allergic. And so I didn't really think that, you know, there was any possibility of that going anywhere. But in recent years, I've been doing allergy shots and can now tolerate being around cats. And after having known each other so well for so long, we started to talk about what it might be like, you know, if we dated and then we ended up dating during the pandemic long distance, which was a fun and exciting challenge. We're engaged now and and learning for the first time how weird it is to plan a wedding. I mean, wedding planning is crazy anyway, but planning a wedding without a lot of years of tradition to kind of establish what it looks like to have a, a same-sex wedding. I mean, certainly plenty of people have gotten married before us, but I didn't really realize until being in the midst of this, how many decisions we were going to have to make that there are not a lot of folks that, that we can look to and say, oh, you know, this person did it exactly the way we want to. We're sort of learning as we go. And uh, that's been fun what and exciting. Sometime I'll have to do a video on that. Yeah. What are some of the challenges you run into in wedding planning that you weren't expecting? Well, you know, I mean, so same-sex marriage has only been legal across the U.S. want to say, I think less than seven years now. 
And so still a lot of folks in the, in the wedding industry, you know, have forms that you fill out to obtain their services that are still based on, you know, who's the bride and who's the groom and all this stuff, even though they're welcoming of same-sex couples, a lot of that language is still out there. And there are things when you think about traditional weddings, you know, we still imagine the groom is already at the end of the aisle as the bride walks down the aisle to here comes the bride with her father, you know, and all this stuff. And, and obviously, you know, lots of straight people don't even do it that way, but that's the image that at least I had in my head of how a, a wedding goes. And so there are then these questions like, how do we do that? Do we, do we both want to walk down the aisle? Do we walk down the aisle together? Do we walk down separately? Do we walk down on the sides and then, you know, not go down the aisle? Do we both start out at the, how do we do, you know, just little questions like that, that I hadn't thought about. And even something like, you're getting engaged. The tradition that I certainly grew up with is that when you get engaged, that the man proposes to the woman, he goes down on one knee and he has a, a ring and she wears a ring, but he doesn't wear a ring until they get married. And then they both wear a wedding ring that she wears in addition to her engagement ring, which is usually a diamond ring. And they, look, there are all these really specific things. And again, not everybody does it that way. Plenty of women have proposed to their male fiancés and so forth. But like, this is the image I had of how you do it. So if you're a same-sex couple, you have to have a conversation about when we get engaged, who's going to propose? And then there's this question of, well, is there going to be a ring? Are there going to be two rings? Are there going to be no rings? What's our symbol? And because neither one of us wanted to wear like a diamond ring, is one ring going to be the engagement ring and the wedding band? Or is it something different? And you know, all of these kinds of of things. And we ended up doing a thing with, we each have a theme color in our lives. Mine is blue, as you can maybe tell those of you who are watching on the video. I have my blue shirt that has become kind of a, a trademark for me. I wear a lot of blue. He wears orange all the time and loves orange. And so we ended up getting orange and blue rings and we're each wearing each other's colors as part of our engagement. And then we're going to swap colors when we get married. So that's kind of fun. Oh yeah, that's adorable. Who proposed to whom? How did you decide that? Obviously, I know this, but I'm asking you because I did because he had been. I think he'd been interested in me for a really long time, and I I was hesitant because of the cat thing and didn't know what to do about all that. And so I sort of felt like he waited on me for a long time. So when it was time to get engaged, I should be the one to uh, to propose. Cute. That's awesome. Yeah. And when's the when's the happy day? Uh, July 23rd. Okay, well, Justin, I got to wrap this up. But before we do that, I do want to make sure people know exactly where to go to find everything about you. So what's the best way for people to follow your work and be exposed to what you're putting out and connect to your content? Tell us all the things. My website is geekyjustin.com because I'm a geek. My YouTube channel, I'm doing a lot of YouTube videos right now. And that channel name is also Geeky Justin. All my social media and stuff is linked from my website. You've written two books, Torn which I highly recommend. Second book I ever read on Affirming Theology and it was game-changing, so good. Thank you. And then another book I've not read yet called Talking Across the Divide. Can you just plug both these books? What are they about? Why should people read them? So Torn is my, my book that I always think of as an introduction to this conversation for Christians. It's aimed at a Christian audience. I wrote it to be, you know, you talked about it in terms of Affirming Theology. 
the affirming theology piece of it is actually the end of the book. It's not a whole book of like Bible analysis. This is a book that's really designed to help people think in terms of stories and empathy. And also for folks who are gay and Christian or LGBTQ and Christian to know that they're not alone. And that's called Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from the Gays versus Christians Debate. That is a book that's designed for people to be able to, you know, you can recommend it to your non-supportive mom. The other book, Talking Across the Divide, is written for a secular audience and is also relevant to Christians, but it is about living in this polarized world. How do we talk about the issues that we disagree on in a way that actually makes change? And it digs a little more into some of those things that we were talking about earlier in terms of whose responsibility is it to make the move to, to, to try to reach out and build a bridge? What does it mean to build a bridge? What does it not mean? And if you want to change somebody's mind, you don't just want to understand that, but you actually want them to change their position on something that you care about. How do you approach them in a way that actually will invite them to listen to you, but with a goal of actually changing their mind on something important? Justin, thank you so much for being on here and taking the time. Thank you. Now a little twist. I totally forgot to tell you this. This is a tradition that I have in my interviews, but this is totally out of left field. And if you don't want to answer it, there's no problem here. I can totally cut it out. But my podcast is called Confessions of a Reformer. And when I do an interview, I usually ask the person I'm interviewing if there's a confession in their line of work, in the industry they're working in, or the field they engage in, is there something they would care to confess in terms of something that they're like, this might be surprising, but I don't believe this, or I believe this now and I didn't used to, or I don't really know what to do with this, or I don't like this, or I don't agree with this thing that you might assume I would, or anything in that kind of a space. Is there something you would care to confess? I will confess that even though I have a reputation for wanting to have these conversations in a very understanding and empathetic way. That's sort of my brand. That's what I I preach and it's what I believe. I will confess that I do not always do that. I will confess that there are many times in my personal life and in these conversations where I don't want to talk to people. There are some people I, I won't talk to. And there are times that even though I wanted to talk to somebody that I lost my temper and I said the wrong thing. And I, you know, some things were just too much. I don't ever want to pretend that I've got it all together. I, I think it's an ideal, but we're also, we're human. I'm certainly human. I've messed up many times, but I think we just have to keep getting back on the, on the saddle. I don't know why suddenly it's a horse analogy, but yeah. <laughs> Love it. Cool. Thank you for sharing. It's relatable for sure. All right, you guys. Well, thank you for listening. Obviously, um, if you want to get a hold of Justin and all the ways that he's doing work in the world, the links will be provided below the episode. So you can grab those there. Again, Justin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Isn't Justin awesome? I love his demeanor. I love the intentionality and patience he brings to this conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview I did with him. If you are part of the LGBTQ plus community and you're a follower of Jesus, or you know somebody like that. I wanna make sure you guys know that we have the Rainbow Room available for you. This is a group that I personally lead and facilitate where I bring some mentorship guidance in this space, particularly for people who are working through their own sexuality and scripture and the church and their relationship with God and their faith and their spirituality. We're working on relationship dynamics. We're establishing appropriate boundaries in the people who are affirming or not affirming in our lives. We're working through our own internalized homophobia. It's an environment where people are supportive. They're in the same exact boat as you. There's encouragement, there's support, there's embracing and celebration of who we are. It's unlike any space I've found in my coming out process. And I'm so proud to offer this to people who are looking for it. We're looking for people who are in the queer community who love Jesus and need the support and guidance that's necessary for a human being going through this process. If that's you, I provided a link below this episode for you to check it out. It's life-changing. Thank you guys so much for watching this episode. We'll see you in the next one.
Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.